only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Good morning. It's a blessing to uh, have the privilege to open God's Word with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to the book of Jonah. It should be found on page 774 of the Pew Bible. And this morning, I want us to look at the very end of chapter 2 and the whole of chapter 3. We're going to start reading partway through uh, Jonah chapter 9. I want to focus our attention this morning a bit on our responsibility as Christians and the concept of ministry or mission. And I think that oftentimes how we feel is that the world around us is, is hurting, that they're dying, that they're lost, and these things are true and that they need to be fed with the gospel. And I don't think any of us would, would deny that the world needs us to feed them with the gospel. But I think the question I want us to think about this morning is, what do we need to be or what do we need to have in order to feed them? What's the qualification for ministry? Uh, what do we need to be fed with? And as we kind of get started, I want to say uh, just a couple of preliminary things. First is, there's a friend of mine, his name is Jean LaRue. Jean LaRue is the pastor of Southwood Presbyterian Church in uh, Alabama. And he has been someone that God has used to minister to my heart. And so some of the things that I have to share with you this morning are not uh, original with me, but they originate with Jean LaRue. And part of that is some of the grammar that I'm going to use this morning. For some of you that are uh, love grammar, then you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable with some of the, my usage this morning. But the points that I'm using this morning are ones that I've borrowed from him. They're points that I've remembered for the last 11 years that have really helped me as I think about my responsibility in ministry. I hope they'll help you. And then, um, uh, so that's basically it. Now, let me give you a little bit of context about where we are in the book of Jonah. God has called Jonah, this prophet, to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a very wicked place, and Jonah is a pretty good guy. And God gave Jonah a very clear message. He says, I want you to rise up right now. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight to Nineveh. And I want you to call out against that great city because I'm going to bring judgment. And Jonah says, uh, you know what? i got a better idea. I think I'm going to go to Tarshish because it's the 180 degree opposite direction. So Jonah walks about 50 miles to Joppa, catches a boat to Tarshish. You have to think about how amazing this must have been for Jonah. He cracked open his piggy bank that morning and had just enough money to get on a boat that was going to Tarshish. And he gets on the boat. The sailors welcome him aboard. He goes down below the deck and he's taking a nap. About this time, he's probably thinking... You know what? God realized that I really wasn't the guy for the job. He's going to get somebody else to do it. He understood I was the wrong man. He's resting peacefully. He thinks that God's providence is basically an affirmation that he's okay. And all of a sudden, the Lord hurls this terrible storm upon the ocean. And the ship, it says, threatens to break apart. Well, these pagan sailors are afraid they're going to die. So they start calling out to all of their many gods. They go down and they say, what's going on with you, man? You're sleeping. We're about to die. Start calling out to your God. But you see, Jonah couldn't call it to his God because that's the whole thing he was about was leaving his God, getting out, getting away from his God. 
And so Jonah finally says, well, the reason that the ship is threatening to break apart, the reason that we're all about to die is because of me, because I've disobeyed God. And he says, you got to throw me overboard. That's the only way you'll be saved. So these sailors don't know what to do. They're caught in this ethical dilemma. And they say, and they pray, Lord, please forgive us for doing this, but this is all we know to do. And they throw Jonah overboard, and the sea is calm instantly. And God sends this great fish. And Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days and for three nights. And at the very end, he, in, in the passage that we pick up this morning, Jonah is in this fish. He's been there for these three days and for these three nights. And this is what Jonah says, starting in the second part of verse 9 in chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, And from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this passage to our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's relevant. We thank you that this is not a tall tale, that this is not a fable. Father, the gospel uh, relates this account of Jonah with the account of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so, Lord, we know that this word is true, that Jesus believed it, that Jesus wants us to know it. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. Lord, help us to know what responsibility we have and how we can be equipped for the responsibility of ministry in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On August the 5th of this past year, Kendall and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. And I I thought somewhat long and hard about where we would go and, and eat dinner. And I called a friend of mine who is an expert at restaurants, especially in the Charleston area, Charleston, South Carolina. And so I was weighing two different restaurants and settled in on the one that I realized through a phone call was the one that we really wanted to go to. It's called Grill 225, and it's on the corner of Market Street and East Bay Street. And if you've never been to Charleston, then I encourage you to go. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But this restaurant is basically in a hotel. It's located in the heart of downtown Charleston. And so we showed up somewhat early because I'd heard that there was this rooftop kind of bar slash restaurant where you could look out over the Charleston Harbor and enjoy a drink. And so we we drove downtown. It was a a nice, obviously very warm summer day. And we we rode the elevator up to the top and we were able to look out and it was just everything was almost perfect. 
And I walked back downstairs after we'd enjoyed a little bit of time together so that we could go and, and eat dinner. And so I walked up to the hostess and I said, you know, I'm Rob Hamby. We have a reservation. Oh, Mr. Hamby. And she treated me like royalty. And uh, she said, basically, she'd asked me on the phone if there was anything special that they could do for us. And I said, well... We, it's our anniversary, so we'd love to sit out of the traffic patterns. And she said, no problem. So we had this perfect booth tucked away, this kind of intimate place where we could kind of just celebrate and enjoy our meal. And so after we had been sitting there for a little while looking at the menu, the waiter came up and said, we understand that this is your anniversary, and we would like to offer you a complimentary champagne toast. And I said, well, we would like to, uh, to receive that complimentary champagne toast. <laughs> so please leave the, you know, leave the bottle. But um, anyway... So we enjoyed everything from the salad to the uh, to the entree, this to the dessert. The dessert was this amazing uh, banana bread pudding with this caramelized ice cream. With it was just it was out of this world, and um, we were just sitting there. And needless to say, we were doing just fine. It was. I, I told Kendall, I said, I think this is probably the best meal I've ever eaten in all my life. It was a very fun night. But while we were doing so fine, there were people across the world who were not doing so fine. There was a nation, there were 33 families and 33 men who were doing anything but fine. Because you see, that night or that day, uh, these 33 Chilean miners had been doing their work in the copper and gold mine in Chile, and it had collapsed upon them. And they were buried beneath the rubble. They were buried alive. And I imagine that the nation and the families uh, wondered if they would ever see their loved ones again. And one day went by, two days went by, three days went by. They heard nothing from them. And I started to think about how um, those two pictures and those two kind of accounts of, of my dinner and our anniversary and the Chilean miners collapse in the mine, how to some degree that describes what I oftentimes think about how I relate to the world around me or how we or how how the church relates to the world around us. You see, part of our our thought is this, that as the church, we're those that have been saved. We're those that now are doing just fine. We we know Jesus. We go to church. Um, And the world, they're the thems out there. They're the ones that aren't doing so fine. When I I turn on to the Granberry Cutoff so many mornings to come to church, we pass by and there's tons of people out there playing soccer. And I think about those are the thems. Those are the thems out there that need to hear the gospel. They need to, to get what the us's here have. They need to, to be doing just fine. And um, so I feel like my responsibility, probably what you feel like your responsibility is, is to bring, to bring words of hope, to bring gospel grace into the lives of these people who are dying. But I started to think about how those two pictures played out. And when we got back from our dinner, we, we were very satisfied. We'd had a nice evening. And though I like to say restaurants changed my life, it really didn't change my life. I mean, it was nice. It was fun. I definitely want to go back there because the food was so enjoyable. But it really didn't change my life. But for the Chilean miners, you know, one day went by, two days went by, three days went by. It wasn't until 17 days had gone by that that uh, the rescue workers heard a tap on the end of the drill bit that broke through at about 2,300 feet below the earth. And it, they had, the, the miners attached this note to the, to the drill bit. The note said, um, we're fine. We're fine in the shelter, all 33 of us. And then uh, they basically devised a scheme or a plan as to how they were going to rescue these workers. And on October the 12th, one out of every six people in the entire world was glued in to this rescue story. That's over a billion people in the world. All of the us's in here were watching all the thems be rescued. 
And I remember at my house, uh, we were pretty much glued to the TV, and we watched as that capsule uh, went below the earth, and it made all these dozens of twists and turns as it descended into this half mile below the earth in order to bring up one miner at a time. time. And all the celebration that went on for these miners. And within less than 24 hours, 33 men who who were thought to be dead were resurrected to new life. And their life will never be the same ever again. Everything about their world, everything about the world of their families had changed in that moment. They'd never be the same. It was a new life. It was a new start. It was a fresh start. And I thought how odd it was for me to be sitting there watching this story, and there was a part of me that was jealous about them. Because part of me was that my life is about the mundane. You know, I get up and I go to work, and yeah, I'm I'm not buried beneath a pit of a bunch of misery, but... You know, there's a part of me that longs for this resurrection. And though I want to tell everybody around me that I'm doing just fine, um, I'm not necessarily doing just fine. And I started to think about how these men who weren't doing fine at all, all of a sudden they're doing far better than fine. And that it seems strange that someone like me who's been a Christian since I don't can't remember and who has a nice, a beautiful wife and two lovely children and comes from a good family and has, has a steady job, how in the world could somebody like me long to be one of them? And I think the reality is this, that every single one of us in this room, we could identify with that story because every single one of us in this room longs for that very same kind of resurrection. We want to be resurrected. And the problem is, is that if you're a Christian, your conversion happened sometime in the past. And though you're wanting to tell everybody around you that you're doing just fine, that you're, you've got it going on, you know, that, that you're pretty good and that your life's okay and we're doing our best to dress nice, we're doing our best to look nice, we're doing our best to be nice and to be fine, we don't necessarily feel so nice. Because we know that far below the surface of our heart, into our heart, the depth of our heart, that there's this this frustration, that there's these sins that we just can't seem to shake. There's this failure that we think just seems to define us, that we wish we could go back and do it all over again. We, could, we wish that we could just be better husbands or better wives, that we could be better fathers or better mothers, that we could be better students or better workers, that we could be better Christians. We wish that there was a hope for us. We know there's a hope for them, but we wish that there was a hope for us. And what I want you to see this morning is this. That the gospel is amazing news. That the gospel is good news. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not only the power of God for salvation for them, but it's also the power of God for salvation for us. You see, the gospel is good news not only for them, but it's also good news for us. And so as we look at this, I want us to look at three points. And this is where the grammar gets messed up. So uh, I hopefully... You won't be so traumatized by it, but you'll, it'll be able to be helpful to you. And this is what I think we learn from this passage. The first thing is this, that the gospel goes to the thems, but first it goes to the us's. The gospel goes to the thems, but first it goes to the us's. The second point is this, that the gospel goes to the thems through the us's. The gospel goes to the thems through the us's. And the last thing is this. The gospel that goes to the thems is the same gospel that goes to the us's. The gospel that goes to the thems is the same gospel that goes to the us's. Let's get to the first point first. The gospel goes to the thems, but first it goes to the us's. Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God's calling Jonah to go to Nineveh for a second time. 
And yet, the only thing, the, the, the thing that's unique about this is that Jonah seems to be the most disqualified person for the job. God's telling Jonah to go to this place called Nineveh. It, it, the walls of Nineveh were 150 feet high. Uh, they had these, the, the walls had this kind of track around it, this, this three-lane highway. It was like Texas Motor Speedway or Talladega where they could run chariots three wide around it, which is a pretty marvelous thing, especially in this day and age. Uh, there were 1,500 towers that they used to protect themselves in Nineveh. They, the towers were 200 feet tall each. It took almost a one and a half million people to build this city. They had luscious gardens. They had uh, fertile fields. They had healthy and abundant cattle. They had everything going on for them. Now, at the very same time, they were exceedingly wicked. They were worshiping idols. They, they would certainly had no, uh, no desire to, to worship the God of the Bible. Um, they were very violent. They were immoral. There was nothing really good about their character. They didn't know they needed anything. They thought they had everything. And yet God is sending Jonah to this exceedingly wicked city that everybody there already has everything that they could ever want or need. And God's sending Jonah there to tell, to tell them, one man, to go and bring them the worst news possible. I imagine that Jonah probably had a reason to fear that he would be killed for doing this. But when God called Jonah to go the first time, Jonah didn't want to go. And the reason Jonah didn't want to go is very simple. Chapter 4 tells us. He knew that God was going to be merciful, that God was going to relent from the disaster that he was threatening to do upon the Ninevites. And so Jonah didn't want to go because, you see, Jonah was an Israelite. And Jonah didn't want the bad guys to have anything good go their way. I mean, think about, think about how terrible that was going to be for him. Everybody in his own native country was going to hate him. Jonah was going to go and save a bunch of the enemy. And, and he didn't want to do that because he was somebody that the people around him liked pretty well. And he didn't think they deserved to be saved. He wanted them to burn in hell. And so he was not going to go and bring good news to people whose lives were bad news. He wasn't going to go rescue these terrible, wicked people from the judgment that they deserved. And so he went in an opposite direction. But he finds himself thrown overboard in a ship. He's singing to the bottom of the sea, and a great fish is sent along. Jonah doesn't know that God sent it, but it's sent along, and he's in the belly of this fish. And in chapter 2, he's praying these prayers, woe is me. He had a long time. He had three days and three nights to realize that he was a complete wreck, that he was hopeless, that he was wretched, that he was sinful, that he had disobeyed God, that he was deserving of judgment. He had, no, he had no bargaining chips. He had nothing to offer before God. He had no reason to believe that he was going to be delivered. But he knew one thing, even still in this fish. He knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomits Jonah up on the dry land. Now, if there's anything that we could say at this point, it's that Jonah was definitely unfit to go to Nineveh now. I mean, he's a guy who didn't have his life together at all. He was a terrible prophet. He was the least likely candidate to succeed. I mean, surely God could find somebody better than Jonah. Jonah was a man who now was defined by the slime on his head, the seaweed in his hair, all the, all the messiness of his life. He was a fraud. He was a wreck. He was a poser. He's done. He needed to just go home. And it's funny because God doesn't tell Jonah to go home. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. You see, this beautiful thing happened for Jonah. The gospel came to him. You see, Jonah wasn't ready to go to Nineveh because he didn't know how desperately he needed God's grace. He didn't know how desperately he needed God to relent from the disaster that he could do to Jonah because Jonah deserved it. 
See, Jonah hadn't tasted and seen that the Lord was good. He didn't understand that this gospel of good news himself in the deep downtown of his heart. So he certainly wasn't ready to go and share this message with the people of Nineveh. But now he did. You see, you can't be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and not be changed and not be transformed. And Jonah was changed. Jonah was transformed because he had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. The salvation belongs to the Lord. That though God had every reason to kill him and to judge him and to condemn him, that God had rescued him and saved him. And the word comes to Jonah a second time and he's told to go to Nineveh. And it says, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. You see, we think, like Jonah thought, that the gospel is for the thems. But the Bible says that the gospel is not only for the thems, but it's also for the us's. There's so many of us that come to church every Sunday and we've heard the gospel. And to some degree, we're tired of hearing the gospel. And we want Darwin or we want Bryce or we want Keith or we want want Matt. We want someone to tell us something different. We need a new word. We've heard the gospel a million times. We need a new word. Now, our friend that we brought with us, we hope that Darwin includes the gospel for them because they need the gospel. But we need a new word. We need something different. But my friends, what we need to see is that, no, we need the gospel. We need the gospel. There's a church that Kendall and I used to attend, and and as you are leaving the church grounds and exiting the parking lot, there was a sign at this church, and this is what the sign said. It said, your mission field begins here. And there's something well-intentioned about that sign, but there's something very unbiblical about that sign as well. Because you see, what, what the signs should really be done, what should really be done with the signs is that they should be hung in the bathrooms, on the mirrors, and that as all of us, the us's, go to wash our hands in the bathroom before we, uh, we come to, to worship, We should look in that sign and we should look in that mirror and see that sign that's reflecting back at us and says, your mission field begins here. You see, the gospel has to come to the us's before it goes to the them's. You see, we need the gospel. But what we believe in our hearts is is that we're okay, the us's are okay, but the them's are all messed up and bad. And we've got to go figure out how we can fix them. We've got to figure out how we can go and save them. And, you know, it's like you're sitting down with a friend and all of a sudden the person you're sitting down with uses some bad language. And it's like, oh, you know, they used the bad word. And then um, they start telling you about their bad life and about all the wretched sin in their life. And then we give them an even bigger evangelical, oh, oh, I'll pray for you, you know. And then nothing makes somebody feel more like a freak when somebody does that to them. And that's why they don't want to talk to us because we can't relate with them. Because we think we're okay and we think that they're a mess and we think we're there to fix them. And let me just say, nobody wants somebody to fix them. There's friends that I call on the phone when I'm really being honest about my life and there are other friends that I don't call. And the friends that I never call on the phone when I'm in a big mess are the ones that try to fix me. I do not want somebody to fix me. I want somebody to enter into life with me, but I don't want them to fix me. The friends that I call are the ones who can identify with me. They're the ones that understand that they're just like me, that they need the gospel as well. But for some of us, you say, well, you know, I've never robbed a bank and I've never assaulted anyone and I've never had an abortion and I've never murdered anybody. I've never done anything really bad. That's kind of who Jonah was. And so I'm not really sure how to relate with these people. 
But you see, the heart of the gospel, it's not about you, but it's about Jesus. The heart of the gospel is about grace. It's about God giving you what you don't deserve. It's about mercy. It's about God not giving you what you do deserve. That's what the gospel is all about. And it's manifested in Jesus. The gospel says Jesus is better than being better. Jesus is better than getting your life all together because you never could get your life all together. You see, we need to take a tour of our hearts. We need to venture into the depth of our being and know intimately and firsthand how badly we need to be saved. How badly we need to continue to be saved. How badly we need Jesus. Imagine how Jonah felt. He's, he's, he, he shows up in Nineveh and he's the least likely candidate. The only thing he's defined by is his sin. The only thing he can tell them is he can tell them this horrendous story about this is how badly I wanted to come and love you all. I did everything I could to escape you. I found myself in the belly of a fish. It threw me up and now I'm here. I, that's who I am. Jonah probably felt like a complete and utter failure. He had to be. And now he knew the whole truth of his identity. He knew that he was not a very good person. He knew that he was a mess. You see, we've got to know the same thing. The only time that we'll ever have hope is when we finally come to the end of all of our hopefulness and we come to a point of hopelessness in ourselves. When we figure out that Jesus is better than being better, that the gospel has to come to the us's before we can take it to the them's. Now, the second point is that the gospel goes to the them's through the us's. It's absurd that God would call Jonah to go to Nineveh. We've already talked about that a little bit. I mean, after all, could he not have found somebody that was better? Could he not have found somebody who had a cleaner track record, somebody who was more equipped and more qualified for ministry? I mean, Nineveh is an exceedingly wicked city. And if you were trying to think about, you know, okay, who do, do we need like a pretty good prophet or do we need an all-star prophet to go to Nineveh? You would think we probably need an all-star prophet because these people have all-star sin. We need an all-star prophet that can go and minister to them. And, and uh, so you think... You know, it's like this. If you're if you're gonna um, do some, if you're gonna build a house, you know, you're you're not gonna hire a bunch of high school, you know, interns who are taking a class on carpentry at the local high school and who say, you know, we can build you a house. <laughs> you're not gonna hire them to build your house because you're gonna get, and you're not gonna hire somebody that's built one house to build your house. You want to hire someone who's built like, you know, a couple thousand houses to build your house. You want to hire someone who's an expert. Because in the world where we live, we believe that expertise is based upon is based upon experience. That the way that you become an expert at something is through your experience. My my nephew Beck, uh, they, my my sister has three boys: David, Charlie, and Beck. Beck is the youngest. He's the most unathletic of the bunch. Although he's fairly athletic, but he's not as athletic as his older brothers. And they were living in Fort Lauderdale a little over two a little over a year ago. And he showed up for the, the kind of the kid's basketball team. And lo and behold, who was on his basketball team but Scottie Pippen's son. Now, some of you that are older like me know who Scottie Pippen is because Scottie Pippen played with Michael Jordan on the Chicago Bulls dynasty. And though Scottie Pippen was not Michael Jordan, he was still Scottie Pippen. He was pretty good. And so his son is on the basketball team, and Scottie Pippen comes out to help kind of coach the team. Well... Of course, the, the coach that was assigned to coach the team realizes that Scottie Pippen's son is on the team and realizes that Scottie Pippen is watching him coach the team. And so he makes a very smart move and asks Scottie Pippen to come on as a coach as well <laughs> to help coach the team because obviously he's an expert at it. Well, Beck's older brothers, who were good at making fun of him as the younger brother, all of a sudden wanted to be on the little boy's basketball team because Scottie Pippen's son was on that team and because Scottie Pippen was coaching that team. 
And they believe, because, because the principle is this, that, that, that expertise is based on experience. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is, is that we rework that paradigm when it comes to ministry. You see, we, we don't really carry out that same paradigm as we, as we think about who makes the best minister, who makes the best missionary. You see, what we believe makes the best minister or missionary is someone who has their life all together. That's why we're constantly trying to get across to people that we're better than them and they need to get their act together. They need to, to get their life together. We believe what makes a good missionary is someone who's very moral, someone who does all the right things. What makes a good minister is someone who's not needy, but somebody who's got all their needs taken care of. They're, they're filled up. What makes a good minister is someone who has a vast knowledge of all the ins and outs of the Bible who understands all the theological minutiae that you might come across. You know, most people are, are, are paralyzed about doing ministry because they're afraid someone's going to ask them a question maybe about the end times and they're not going to know the answer and they're going to look like a fool. And so what makes and qualifies somebody for ministry is expertise in all of these areas. And so what we believe is this, that, that a minister or a missionary is kind of like a baker, somebody that works in a bakery, and that their job is to bake all these tasty gospel loaves and to, to share them out with the people around them so that the, that the thems out there can eat these beautiful gospel loaves that the us's have baked. And yet the Bible says nothing like that. It says nothing of the sort. You see, the Bible says that Jonah is actually the perfect guy for the job. Now, why is that? Because you see, Jonah has the experience that he needs in order to be an expert at ministry. Because the heart of the gospel is grace. The heart of the gospel is mercy. It's grace and mercy for sinful, wretched, hopeless, helpless people. And Jonah has tasted and seen that the Lord is good firsthand. That's what qualifies him for ministry. His disqualification is the very thing that has now qualified him for ministry. There's a, a guy, John Sartell, who's a pastor of Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And he says this. He says that there are two organizations in the world where you have to be bad in order to get in. The first one is the mafia. The second one is the church. And that's the thing, because, you know, if you want to join this church and you come to Darwin and Darwin says, so tell me why you'd like to join this church. And you tell him and he says, and you start saying, you know, because I'm a really good person and I do a lot of good things and I'm just real good. And I want to hang out with a lot of other good people. And so that's why I want to join. Then you can't join this church because you see the, the symbol of the church is a cross. And what the cross tells us is that we're so bad, that we're so messed up that the son of God had to be murdered that it took nothing less than the murder of the Son of God in order for us to be redeemed, in order for us to be rescued. That's how bad we are. We needed the cross in order to be part of God's family. You see, what qualifies us for ministry is not all of our fitness, but our lack of fitness. It's our failure. My very first year of college ministry at Furman, I was sitting down with a student who I was a little intimidated by. And he, I can remember... Um, a couple of fears that were going on in my life. And so I went and I, I, uh, I met with an older campus minister, a guy named John Stone. And I said, John, you know, what do I do if, if these guys, you know, what do I do if a student asks me about my past? You know, my, I, didn't, I wasn't in RUF. I didn't have this glowing track record through college. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, some, I mean, I was in sin. I'm always in sin, but I wasn't like I had this horrendous track record, but I didn't have a lot of positives. 
And so I thought, you know, what happens if they ask me about my past? And John said, you know, Rob, we don't want them to be like you. We want them to be like Jesus. And my fear was this. My fear was that I was going to be found out. And that fear kind of came true because when I was sitting down with a student that sparked my journey to Knoxville to meet with John, the reason it happened is because is I was trying to, to bake some, some gospel loaves for the student that was sitting across from me. And he basically said, you just got out of seminary. You think you know everything and you don't know anything. And I wanted to say, I know a lot more than you know. I know a ton, man. I've been, I've been examined, you know, I, I want to tell you everything that I know. But, but what my heart was telling me was, you're right. I don't know anything. And I didn't want him to know I didn't know anything. The only thing I knew was that I was messy and I wasn't fit for this job and was taking me now 11, almost 11 years, and I'm, I'm not there yet, to figure out that the only thing that qualifies for me for ministry is the fact that I am a failure, that I'm not fit, that the only thing I have to bring people is the gospel. You see, gospel ministry always flows from weakness. It never flows from strength. Ministry is always based upon grace. It's not based upon moral fitness. Skip Ryan asked this question one time in a sermon. He says, does anyone know what it takes to do neurosurgery? And basically, obviously, that's a very impressive form of surgery. It's the surgery related to treating the central nervous system, peripheral nervous systems, and the spinal column. And let me read you a little bit of the the training requirements for a neurosurgeon. Um, It's the longest training period of all the medical specialties. It's an eight years of pre-medical and medical education, one year-long surgical internship, a five to seven years of neurosurgery residency. Um, Then many neurosurgeons pursue an additional one to three years of training in a subspecialty fellowship. And basically what's at stake in neurosurgery is if you do it wrong, the person will be paralyzed, brain damaged, They'll, 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 they'll live, psychosis will be part of their lifestyle, or they'll die. So it's not like a laid-back kind of surgery. And this is what he says. He says, um, how much more impressed would you be if a neurosurgeon could do that same kind of surgery with a butter knife from your kitchen drawer? I mean, I know, think about that for a minute. Think about going to the hospital and the neurosurgeon pulls out a butter knife. And this, is, this guy can do it with a butter knife, you know. He doesn't need lasers. He doesn't need all the fine tools, instrumentation. He just needs a butter knife. And the point is this. The duller the instrument, the more impressive the result. And God's got the dullest knife in the drawer. He pulls Jonah out. He says, let me get the dullest knife I can possibly get. Let me get Jonah. I'm going to send Jonah and I'm going to blow Nineveh away. I'm going to just blow them away. I'm going to show them that I can use the dullest instrument to do the greatest work. And that's the point for us. Because you see, um, we're dull instruments. And it's not your sharpness that qualifies you and equips you for ministry. But it's the fact that you know you're dull. It's that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You see, big sinners make great evangelists. Look what happens. It says that Jonah goes and proclaims this message and... um, in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They, they, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He sends out a proclamation. Everybody turns from their sin and they turn to God. The dullest knife in the drawer has brought about this amazing transformation of these wicked people. You see, your dullness is what qualifies you, not your fitness. But the last point I want you to see is that the same gospel that goes to the thems goes to the us's. You see, this gospel that Jonah proclaims pierces their hearts. 
The gospel is this two-edged sword. It pierces to the very inner part of our being. It never fails to do what God sends it forth to do. It always accomplishes its purpose. And the beauty, beautiful, most beautiful part of the whole passage to me is verse 10 when it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. You see, God relented of the disaster He was going to do to them. Why? Because of grace, because the gospel is about grace, because the gospel is good news to people whose lives are bad news. The gospel is not be better, try harder, do more. The gospel is you can never do enough. I think a New Testament reading of verse 10 would go something like this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it, but He did it to His Son. You see, God took all of the wickedness, all of the sin, all of, all of the judgment that the Ninevites deserved, and He put every last drop of it upon His own Son. He... Jesus was forsaken by His Father. Jesus hung on that wretched tree. And He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God forsook His Son so that He could remember the Ninevites. So that He could remember you and me. Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. And some of us, as we read this story, we so desperately wish that we were lost so that we could be found. We so desperately wish that we could have what the Ninevites have in this passage. You see, we're saved. We're in the church. We've promised God a zillion times that we'd stop doing the same things. We promised that we wouldn't be angry anymore. That, that we promised that we would be better husbands, that we would be better wives, that we'd be better mothers. We've promised that we'd stop doing these terrible sins. We've vowed. We've beat our bodies. We've done everything that we could do in order to say, God, we're getting on the right track. We've vowed to you, God, that we're going to get our life together. And yet our lives are defined by shame because we can't get it together. And we come on Sunday mornings and we need a new word. We need a different word. We need something to tap in to the misery and the despair of our lives. We need something to lift us up. And Jonah reminds us that salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, we need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. We don't need a new word. We need to know the gospel because God never leaves or forsakes those that He loves. I'll end with this. This past week I was... Every other week we have a staff meeting for religious and spiritual life, which is the, one of the departments at TCU. And we were, this past week was the, the, we always have this office Christmas party, which is hilarious. Um, I wish you could be a fly on the wall there. But we were this past week trying to decide who was going to host the uh, office Christmas party. And so the, the chaplain started saying, well, you know, my house is under construction. And she started saying, you know, you can have it at my house, but it's a complete wreck. <laughs> the campus crusade guy was like, Oh, yeah, I know what that's all like. You know, I've got that closet in my house. Whenever people are coming over, he's like, they always show up 15 minutes early. And I wish they'd be 15 minutes late because I'm just throwing junk in a closet and trying to hide it away. And, and the, the young life guy's saying, yeah, we've got that same closet. You know, we're, don't go in that closet. Don't go in that closet. We don't want you to see what's in that closet. Of course, I'm being quiet over there because my office is a wreck. And um, I'm not going to tell them about a closet. Good night. I've got a couple of rooms in my house. I don't want them to go in the garage. I don't want them to go. You know, I don't want them to go in a lot of places. There's we got like yellow tape over some of my areas. Do not go in my closet. This is a hazardous area. And I'm starting to think, you know, yeah, we don't want them to go in there. Why? Because we don't want people to come in and see all of our junk. Because then they'll start thinking that we're a mess, and they might fire us or think, man, you're not qualified for ministry. I can't believe the Presbyterian Church hired you to do this. And um, But I think the message of Jonah is this, that we've got to embrace our closets. We've got to embrace our rooms. 
We've got to invite people in. We've got to realize that it's okay that we're not okay. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says it's okay that you're not okay. So stop trying so hard to be okay. It's okay that you're not okay. We're only okay through Jesus. You see, the gospel says that in Jonah, this passage of Jonah says to us that the gospel goes to the thems, but first it has to come to the us's. And that the gospel goes to the thems through the us's. It goes to the thems through the people who are messy and disqualified. But the same gospel that goes to them comes to us. You see, my friends, Jesus is better than being better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, that it's the power of God for salvation. And we pray that you would save us, that you would be about that continuing work of salvation, that we would realize that Jesus is better than being better. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?